0: Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. This episode is another edition of our Roll of Law Awards series. Joining me today is a canonist who needs little introduction because his name and his work is known to every U.S. canonist who has worked in a marriage tribunal since the mid-1980s. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Kenneth Bocafola. Welcome, Monsignor.
1: Good. Very nice to be here and talk to you.
0: We are here on the 19th of January, 2021, and uh, we're in the throes still of this coronavirus pandemic. How are you um, doing up there in New York? Well,
1: it's difficult. I just heard a friend of mine, he has a house with another priest and the other priest has is, is been discovered as positive. So it's um, a little dangerous now, you know. Luckily, it's, it's a slight case so far and they're hoping to be over with soon.
0: I think that's one of the challenging things about this pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about you. You've got your JCL and your JCD both at the Gregorian and Rome. Tell our listeners a little bit about why you went to study canon law.
1: Well, actually it was made for me uh, because I was uh, you know, ordained uh, for the diocese of Rockville Center. I was in a parish uh, as the assistant pastor for several years. And the judicial vicar of the diocese lived in the same house. He he lived in the room next to me, and then he would go to the office and work in the tribunal. After a year or so that I was there, he said, oh, he had spoken to the bishop. He needs some extra help in the tribunal. Of course, they knew that I had studied in Rome and uh, knew some Latin and so on. So anyway, he said he was going to give my name to the bishop. Then I said, well, I don't know. I was really, um, used to the subject of history. I thought that we had a minor seminary at that time. Well, if anything, if I wasn't going to be in the parish and I thought maybe I would like to teach history. But he waited a few weeks and said, he spoke to the bishop the bishop says, no, he wants me to study canon law. So that's how I got started in canon law.
0: That was a time when it's pre 83 code. And so, but pre- the code was being developed.
1: uh, Pre-Vatican II. Well, no, not when I went to Rome. It was uh, when I went to study as a seminarian, it was pre-Vatican II. In fact, I have a picture on the steps of uh, St. Peter's reading the Pope, the opening day of the council. Oh, wow.
0: I think you told me before that Rockville Rockville Center Diocese didn't exist when you first went to study? Yes,
1: yeah. It was founded in 57. And I had started in the high school seminary. It was first year of high school that it was the preparatory seminary of the Diocese of Brooklyn at that time. So I used to go from Huntington, Long Island, that's my hometown. And I used to go to Brooklyn every day, Uh, by train.
0: How about your family? Were you, do you have siblings?
1: Oh, I Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I lived in Huntington Station, uh, New York on Long Island, and I have two sisters and my mother and father, and that was our family then.
0: What did you do in between? You were a parish priest before you went to study canon law?
1: Yes, for about six years.
0: Well, actually, uh, what I was,
1: doesn't have to do with canon law, is really when I was an assistant pastor. Because during the time of canon law, I was also working in the parish on weekends, and then in the tribunal for the canonical work. But one time I was at the parish and visit the sick, and I went to visit this little girl. Her parents were very concerned about her. But anyway, we said prayers, we did all the proper ministrations for the sacraments and so on. And then um, around one o'clock in, in the in the morning, it was snowing outside, and the mother and father were there again, saying the daughter. Had a turn for the worst. So uh, please come. I said, Well, actually, really, there was nothing to be done further except pray. But I knew the, that they were really concerned. So I made the sacrifice and uh, went back there to, the par- to the hospital, said some more prayers. And then the next day, she had a re- good recovery. So they think that I'm a miracle worker of some kind, because I had a first uh, communion. They introduced, this was a little girl you you saved, they said. Oh, uh,
0: what a so beautiful I, story. Yeah. It was very comforting, I'm sure, for them to have you at least come, like you said, even though you knew, well, there's not yeah, much more to be that's done. That's it.
1: So you've got to distinguish between what reason says and what emotions uh, require sometimes, too. Uh,
0: and I think that also applies to the canonical realm too, at times.
1: Because behind every case, you've just got the box, the, the file of the case, but uh, it's really souls that are involved most of the time. Did
0: you have experience in the, in the marriage tribunal, hands on, so to speak, with petitioners and respondents, a trial judge? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, I was there for 11 years, I was in the, in the diocesan tribunal. So when I returned from Rome with the degree, I worked in the tribunal and I was the assistant judicial vicar for 11 years. And then I got the call to go to Rome.
0: And how did that happen? Who called? Well,
1: actually, um, while I was in Rome as a seminarian, the North American college was full so that the bishop Kellenberg in 1960, the bishop, new bishop of Rockville Centre, wanted to send four seminarians to Rome, but the college would only take two from each diocese. So it happened that our vicar general, Bishop Baldwin, had been an alumnus of an Italian college, Almo Collegio Capranica, which was the oldest seminary in the world, founded in uh, 1457. It was founded by the will of Cardinal Capronica. Anyway, the Diocese of Brooklyn had had the practice of sending some people to learn Italian well there, to that college. So anyway, Bishop Baldwin, since he was an alumnus, he called them up and they said they would take. So they sent the two two seminarians with Italian names, Baccafola and Candreva, even though each of us, his mother was born in Ireland. I'm um, mother was born in Ireland my mother was born in Ireland too so we, we studied then at this Collegio Capranica and then of course we got to know some of them so they they must have been working in the in the in fact it was Monsignor who was an alumnus of Capranica Monsignor Bruno was also a, an alumnus so they must have been looking for somebody from America because Cardinal Egan, he was his prior rota judge to me, along with uh, Tom Doran. Around
0: 1986 is when you went to Rome?
1: Yes, yes. Yes, so I, I had uh, one of these alumni from Capranica had asked me what would I think about working at the rota? I said, well, if the Pope appoints me, I'll take it. <laughs> so that's what happened.
0: Where did you live and what was that transition like?
1: There's a house for the uh, Americans working in Rome called Villa Stritch. And uh, it's about 25 rooms for priests that work. Because after Paul VI, he wanted to internationalize the Curia. So uh, he had made places for Americans, but of course they needed some place to live. The Italians live often at home with their mother. (laughs) But, we were far from home and the American thing is you live in the rectory. So there was a house, they built this house, Villa Stitch, is owned by the Conference of Catholic Bishops for the and it provides a home for those working in the Roman Courier, Americans working in the Roman Courier. So we met many, many people that have gone on to become bishops then in various dioceses. Archbishop Brolio, and Archbishop Hebda. Archbishop of of San Francisco, the Bishop of Hartford, Leonard Blair. So, really, we got to know quite a few people because they came for about five years, but I stayed there for 25 years or more.
0: Wow, that's really impressive. So, your title was Prolet Auditor?
1: Yes, oh, I can tell you a story. In Italian, it's Reverendissimo ed Illustrissimo Monsignore. Most Reverend and Most Illustrious Monsignor. <laughs> and so I had a card in the Italian that said that name. I went back to visit the town where my father, my grandfather came from in Northern Italy. And I visited there one time and I was asking the, the, one of the neighbors there. They in their family, they remembered the people who had been there and had gone to America. So we yeah. went to the town where my father and the family knew the family anyway. I showed them the card, uh, who I was, and so on. Then years went by, about six or seven years went by, and I took another visit up there. And the lady had a little restaurant. I knocked at the door of the restaurant and uh, I said, I don't suppose you remember me. I was here quite a while back. Said, yes, of course I remember really you, the illustrious reverendissimo,
0: Monsignor. You made an impression. <laughs> yeah. How does it function? How does the Roman Rota function? Are there a certain number of judges? Are you divided into teams? How do cases come yeah. to you? Can you tell us a little bit of that?
1: Well, uh, there are about 21 members of the Rota, judges of the Rota. It's not a fixed number, it can alternate or change with the times. But the case comes in, each case, the first three first case comes in, has the first judge as the ponens, or the chief judge, and then the two following him are the assistant judges on that case. Then the next case comes in, the guy that was the first assistant becomes the ponens, and it moves down. Then the third case comes in, the third guy becomes the ponens, and the ones younger to him then uh, go on and become the ponens in the case.
0: Is that by seniority, this list? That yes, yes, it's by
1: seniority, yes. And so the dean distributes the cases then according to that system. And so each case has three judges on it. And now, all
0: of you have to do a review of all of the materials. Do you submit your own brief? Do you sit and do it orally? What's that process oh, like?
1: Yeah, well, the ponens then keeps the case moving. He makes all the decisions of... Whether when the lawyer asks for something or a medical expert is needed and so on, he takes care of all that. And then when it's ready for the decision, yes, it's all the testimony is taken and, and the various documents and so on that belong to the case. They are given to each judge of the three and then they have a meeting and they discuss it. And uh, then that's usually the decision. Oftentimes they follow what the opponent says, but. Also, there could be sometimes when they want to vote on a particular aspect of it, whether to accept this reasoning or
0: not. Were there any cases that sort of stand out in your mind, or any that ever bothered you?
1: Well, um, you know, we only we not only did marriage cases, but we did regular cases. An interesting, interesting case from Australia was this, this suit by the Apostleship of the Sea against the for over, over property, that they own some property. So those kinds of things were interesting too. And um, then we had another case where decision had to be made about the Knights of Malta, where they required to submit to the competency of the rota. So anyway, it was it was finessed over the question because it was a question that would require much research. And but luckily they, they had appealed to two tribunals at the same time. So we said, oh, well, they had gotten the competency from the other tribunal because they were the one's first approach. So anyway, it saved us a lot of work. That's it. The judges try to make less work for themselves by picking a point that can really be defended. uh,
0: So during those 25, 26 years that you were a prelate auditor, how often did you get to come home to the United States?
1: Well, I came... First of all, in the summertime, we had a nice long vacation in the summer, month's vacation. And then uh, I, then when my parents were getting older, then we came back not only at uh, in the summertime, but also at Christmas. And then even for the last few years, even at Easter time, because my mother was very anxious to see me. She said, oh, you've been there long enough now. Come home. She says.
0: Do <laughs> you... Recall in any kind of a big difference between when you started in the mid-80s and by the time we finished in around 2012 with the internet? It was that, the electronic records or things, was there any noticeable difference from the beginning to the end?
1: Well, they say the road doesn't act too fast and actually there wasn't a proposal to uh, put you, the cases on the internet and use so that people could read them and, but then questions of confidentiality came up. We put it all on the internet, even though it's in, I, I was saying that, well, it's not too, you know, too much danger of confidentiality since everything is written in Latin, you know?
0: Canon Law Society of America, you joined that early on after finishing your studies before going to the ROTA and our listeners will be able to hear you, our of law acceptance speech. Tell us a little bit about how you view the CLSA and its relationship with uh, how it perhaps has interacted with Rome over the years?
1: Well, of course, that's uh, the theme of the uh, response. The Canada Law Society and my connection with it was very important for me. Because first of all, I got to visit various parts of the United States. <laughs> for the convention, which was a very inter- interesting thing to meet at the convention. Then, of course, I met so many canonists, uh, that you got to know who their, their name was and their face was. Of course I knew one of the, uh, you may have, did you know Bill Vavaro? Yes, I know who he was. We, we started in, uh, we were classmates from the, from the first year of high school until all the time, right? Well, we were in Rome at different times, not at the same time, but uh, we worked together. For many years in, he was in Brooklyn, I was in Rockville Center. So, the Canon Law Society really provided that insight. You, you had some intellectual point of view, something to stimulate you at those conventions, and then you had the ability to meet people and see new places. So, uh, I was very happy with my like, connection with the Canon Law Society. Unfortunately, they couldn't attend too many conventions after being nominated to the ROTA because they had their their vacation just ended at the very day, practically, that the Canon Law Society scheduled their meeting for most of the time.
0: Do you still engage in much canonical research, reading, or are you, do you kind of feel yourself retired?
1: Well, I thought I would do it. I did a, a little bit. I wrote an article for the jurists since I retired, and uh, then I, but actually it's getting a little bit harder, and I'm getting further away from it, and uh, my health is not quite as good as it was, and so I'm basically relaxing more.
0: Hey, that's, that's perfectly fine when well, you retire. Of
1: course, I've got to take care of myself. That's what my yes. mother and sisters say. Oh, I heard that I lived in Villa Strich. Things were taken care of, the meals were provided, you know, and, and so, oh, you you gotta live in the real world, they're telling me. <laughs> now I am getting going shopping and getting the food and so on.
0: <laughs> so if you were to speak to someone perhaps thinking of studying canon law, what about young people today who who are studying canon law? What would you, what advice would you give them?
1: I think that maybe um, they have to do a Tizina little paper for their licentiate. I think they should be careful what topic they use because, first of all, if they do a little far-sightedness, that if they did go on to become study for the doctorate, then that might be something they could expand or use or some of the work that they would have done on it already, so it would be helpful for them. So that would be something to think of instead of just deciding at the last moment what they're going to do. Then secondly, of course, if they can really learn a little bit of the Latin, they should be somewhat familiar with Latin, especially in canon law, that's the only place where they really use it. Oh, that reminds me when even when I started at the Rota, I didn't think I would have any trouble because the language of instruction at the Gregorian University where I had studied was in Latin. And so uh, I was familiar with it, but it's quite a different step from writing. Reading and understanding the Latin is easier than writing Latin. And so um, a couple of my sentences in the beginning were, had a few mistakes in them. Monsignor Pompeta was the dean. He said, oh, you know, there, there was a few mistakes in the Latin. I said, well, I did the best I can. He says, well, all right, I'll 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 look over and correct anything if you don't mind. So yeah, I got the dean to do the work for me.
0: <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. I like that. Um, so he must have thought you were doing an okay job, at least with the reasoning and your argument and, and the decisions. Yeah. So <laughs> when you were... Chosen for the 2013 Roll of Law Award and got the call, and you were told that. What went through your mind at that time? You hadn't been back in the States for very long, I would think.
1: No. uh, In fact, yeah, it was just in September, I think I came back, and then it was in October that uh, it was the Roll of Law Award. Well, first of all, I was humbled by it, really. I I didn't expect it. I didn't uh, really think of it. And so it was kind of like a surprise. And of course they kept it very secret. That was one of their things. They, it comes to announce at the at the award dinner. Jack Alessandro was, was I think he did an introduction or something. He said we used to play golf together. He told a little story about playing golf. I was playing with another friend of mine who thought he was much better than me. But I was winning. So he says don't count your money before it's in your pocket, you know? I said, yeah, oh, I said, but I'm not dealing with my money. I'm dealing with yours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you and I talked a week or so ago about uh, places you visited, you've been back to Rome since you left, is that?
1: Yes, I've been, Well, during the time in Rome, again, I was visiting the people that I knew, there was Monsignor Shaka. Bishop Shaka. He uh, was a judge on the rotor with us first, and then he became the Secretary General of Vatican City State for a while. And then he became the, at the Senatura. he became the Secretary of the Signatura. So that's his position now, so I usually stopped and visited him. And he he uh, introduced me to Cardinal Mamberti, who was the head of the Signatura now. And of course, when I was working there, I had been a consultor for the congregation of the clergy, and also on the discipline of the Roman Curia. I was a, I was a judge of the Vatican City State.
0: Yes, uh, I saw that in the citation that it says, um, you are a consultor of the congregation clergy, a member of the disciplinary commission of the Roman Curia, and became a judge of the Court of Appeals of Vatican City State in 2004. So, What did that Is that a civil
1: law? Is that more of a civil law? Yes, that's the... The trouble is that they didn't have too many laws in Vatican City. (laughs) Because when it was founded, then they just took the legal system. They took the Italian law as it was, and that was in 1929. It was still ruled by the king. So they hadn't changed the law. Now they've changed the laws now to become... Everybody was saying money laundering. There was no law in the Vatican City about, you know, how to handle money or whatever. So the people really didn't do anything wrong because there was no, nothing that was against, you know. But anyway. yeah,
0: um, there were yeah. recent changes in that with the Secretary yeah, of Yeah, so
1: now they put a whole new system. They put a basic system in Because, for example, we had to decide a case where the, the contract, somebody was to be fired and he said he had a contract that didn't allow him to be fired. But then anyway, we had to go back to what the Italian understanding of a contract was as, as been decided by the king in such a year, 1879 or something like that. So they were, those are the kinds of things they were working with, though they weren't too helpful. But they didn't have too many cases The only cases they had were people who were perhaps fired from their job and thought that was unfair. They could bring a case.
0: And how long did that role last, from 2004 until you- Five
1: years. For five
0: years. Did you enjoy it? Was it something different?
1: Yes. But luckily, there were only only two or three cases, though. I'm glad I'm not there now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's
0: a whole different can of worms there now. Absolutely. So yeah. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned um, some of the names of folks that you studied with, shared time with in the office. Are there any personalities that were a in your mind and maybe as better uh, friends, so to speak, that you still would have considered friends as opposed to just co-workers?
1: Well, uh, yeah, well there was Monsignor Shaka, of course. And then uh, there was Monsignor Pompetta, he, he went on to become Cardinal Pompetta but he was very helpful to me in the beginning. Then uh, there's some other work with Monsignor Torinatori was another one. He had been a clerk in the ROTA for many years and gradually he was promoted to become a judge at the ROTA. So there, I don't know how many cases there are by him because he wasn't judged for too long, he reached retirement, so, so.
0: So you, I think on your, CLSA profile, you mentioned that you, of course, know English, you had studied Latin, uh, Italian. What other languages are you proficient well, we, in?
1: we had to read um, French, Spanish, and uh, Portuguese. They didn't, in other words, they didn't translate those things. I was, uh, so I didn't have too much difficulty with the French, Italian, Spanish, but the Portuguese was difficult. And so then if anything came in another language, it had to be translated. They had some things from Czechoslovakia, of course, Arabic, too. There were some cases. Of course, you always felt bad, you know, that people's wishes couldn't be accepted, you know. But uh, many times it was presented under the wrong grounds oftentimes, too. And we were able to correct that time by adding grounds sometimes and so on.
0: Mm And now that Metis Udex has has come out and, and and there's not necessarily a second instance required, it yeah. kind of changes things too, a little bit. Yes.
1: Yeah. Now I'm really unfamiliar with, because uh, not only do you read the thing, but so by using it every day, you know the ins and outs of the uh, the legislation. Whereas, so I'm, I'm, I am I'm really haven't used Metis Udex at all, practically, since I've been retired. It came out just when I retired. In other mm-hmm. words, that's a little bit of a problem with the canon law, that things can change so easily and so you just get away going. It had the everything determined by Dignitas Kanubi was very well done.
0: Yes.
1: And every point was taken and that only existed for about five years or so and when all the laws changed it became it's still good, but uh, it's not accurate anymore. In all Correct aspects.
0: I'm really grateful to you for joining us for this podcast.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Are we going to say goodbye now?
0: How about we do that? Thank you so much for joining me today, and maybe just give us a little blessing.
1: All right. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit be with you, and may he bless us all forever. Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Amen.